Good morning. Good morning. What's everybody doing today? Good. Yeah? Um, well, for those of you who are aware or interested, we are uh, still anxiously on baby watch. Um, as I've told several people, the game is in uh, extra innings at this point. <laughs> the uh, ninth inning was supposed to have been Wednesday of last week, and so... Uh, so who knows now? <laughs> so if my phone suddenly rings, you'll know who it is. Probably I will not put it on speakerphone, though. That wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, it did not. All right. So who knows who this guy is? Oh, maybe I should turn this on. Denzel Washington. Yeah. And so um, a while back, Denzel Washington uh, was quoted as saying this. He said, when I was young and started really making it as an actor, I came and talked to my mother and I said, Mom, did you think this was going to happen? That I'd be so big and be able to take care of everybody and I can do this and I can do that? Denzel Washington's mother then said this, Oh, you did it all by yourself. I'll tell you what you can go do by yourself. Go outside and get a mop and a bucket and clean these windows. You can do that by yourself, superstar. <laughs> she, that she, that she wasn't finished. She said, boy, stop it right there, stop it right there, stop it right there. If you only knew how many people been praying for you, how many prayer groups she put together, how many prayer talks she gave, how many times she splashed me with holy water, to save my sorry behind. <laughs> so it seems that Mrs. Washington wanted to make sure her son remained humble, and so she told him in no uncertain terms what she thought of his stardom. Now, maybe professional quarterback Joe Namath's mom could have had the same talk with him, because at the height of his popularity back in the uh, 70s, he released his autobiography, which was titled, I Can't Wait Until Tomorrow Because I Get Better Looking Every Day. <laughs> oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. <laughs> so, though we, you know, may not be among the rich and famous, and we don't have people constantly telling us how lovely or wonderful or... Um, fantastic we are, humility is still a problem, I think, for most of us. Um, and so in the section that of James that we're going to look at today, he offers us some very practical and some very sound advice on overcoming this natural human tendency we have to be prideful. So let's pray. So Father God, uh, I just lift this time of uh, preaching your word up to you. Lord God, I just pray that you would speak uh, through me to the hearts and the minds of those who are here listening. Father, impress upon all of us uh, how we can fight uh, against the prideful attitude that uh, comes upon all of us and, and is so easy uh, for us to uh, pick up. So Lord, we just give you thanks. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant James who has uh, written this word. And um, just give you praise, Lord, in all things. And, and ask it all now, in Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in James chapter 4 today, uh, verses 1 through 10. So James 4, 1 through 10. So let's see what James has to say uh, in this section about humility. So he starts off and he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, we have to remember, he's, he's writing this to Christian believers. And so, it clearly, these conflicts were involving people that, that knew Jesus, right? And the fact that he uses the plural form of the word indicates that this wasn't just a one-time thing. This has been going on for a while, right? And so, he's, he's writing to sort of bring correction there. Now, it could have been that they were just arguing over doctrine. There could have been factions in the church that were sort of racing up against each other. Um, or it could have involved like worldly affairs, struggles such as with personal influence, uh, influence or financial gain even. And so uh, it, it's interesting that the Greek word that we translate in this uh, text as passions is actually related to the English word hedonism. And hedonism is the philosophy that the chief purpose of living is just to satisfy yourself, right? It's all about me or you. And um, Jesus used the very same word when he talked about uh, people who were choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and because of that, they don't mature, right? They never move beyond a certain point in their life. And so these sinful desires lay within each of us. It's, I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise, I don't think, to any of us that have lived more than five minutes in this world. Um, these desires sort of express that, that pre-Christian nature that we had that still is trying to come back into uh, uh, center stage, right? Um, and, and we can never completely be free of those things only by God's grace do we escape the domination that they have on our lives. All right, so he goes on and in verse 2. He says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, that's, those are fairly strong words. So what, what was J James thinking of to use this word murder? And I don't think he was actually accusing these believers of actually murdering one another, but was essentially showing them that the fights that they were having, that these disagreements, were as offensive to God as if they were murdering one another. And so at the end of verse 2, uh, he outlines this startling truth that the readers of this letter were lacking what they sought simply because they'd failed to ask God. And you know, that on one hand, that could strike us as, oh my gosh, yeah, that's fairly basic. But really, how many times does that apply to us? You know, we've talked before about this idea that um, prayer tends to be a last resort instead of a first response, right? And so we've got to get back to that idea that that should be the first thing we do, not the last thing we try out of desperation because nothing else has worked, right? So what James is outlining here about failing to ask, I think applies just as much to us now as it did back then. But then he goes on 
and he sort of clarifies a little bit and expands on that point. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So what he's saying is there's a bit more involved here in this process than just simply asking, okay? You're not going to receive answers to prayer from God unless you ask with the right motives in mind and in accordance with God's will. That's clearly what James is, is trying to tell us here. And Paul has certainly reiterated that point many times over in, in a number of his writings. Well, James isn't finished taking them to the woodshed yet. So we move on to verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All right, James, tell us what you really think. So this idea of friendship with the world describes a, an actual deliberate choice. Right, to follow what the world is doing, to follow the ways of the world. And because of that, it is in essence an act of defiance and rebellion against God. Right? We're making the choose. John uh, Potter is fond of saying, um, you're either representing the heart of the Father or you're representing the heart of the enemy. There really is no middle ground in that in that sense. And I think that's essentially what James is talking about here. You've got the world, which is the domain of the enemy, and you've got everything else, which is the domain of God. And so it's, it's that for that reason um, he calls these people, these you adulterous people. Um, because in both Isaiah and in Matthew, we find that this act of turning away from God is really referred to as spiritual adultery. It's turning away from, um, you know, what the, the, the covenant, the vows that you made. All right, verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us? This verse is really confirming this idea that friendship with God and friendship with the world are incompatible. Right? We're to live in the world, but not be of the world. If we were of the world, that would really mean friendship with the world, friendship with the world's ways. We're to be in it, just not of it. And, and God just simply refuses to share your commitment um, with any other so-called God, right? And if you're not giving him total loyalty and devotion, then... He's jealous of that, right? And you are making something else a God ahead of him. And we've talked a lot about the fact that this doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's not okay to go out and make a good living and to enjoy the things of this world. It's when you pass that threshold of enjoyment and begin to idol idolize you know, those kinds of worldly things that God is going to start to have a problem with that. And then he starts walking down a path of good news. He says, but he gives more grace. Gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but give, gives grace to the humble. So we can take some comfort 
in the fact that even though God is, uh, is demanding on us, Scripture tells us that he doesn't put more on our plate than he's allowed us the grace to be able to handle, right? Even though it may look like a lot, it's truly, um, he truly still has his, his hand upon us. And that is almost, a, that's a direct quote from Proverbs um, 3.34. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Because it's the proud that are those that, that basically turn their heart away from God to something else. But the humble are the ones that understand and practice the total dependence on God. So now he gets into some of the instructions. And we're going to look at these in a little bit more detail later. But um, first of all, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So submit to God really calls us to subject our wills to his control. Right? And you can really do that only when you recognize that God is greater and worthy of more honor than you are. That's a hard pill for some people to swallow. But it's, it's true. If you're holding yourself up in some way, you're not fully submitting, it to, su submitting yourself to God. And then, then he looks at the negative side of this, which, with this command that where he urges us to resist the devil. And this word resist is essentially a military metaphor that urges Christians to stand their ground against the attacks of Satan. And so we, we resist the devil when we just refuse to give in to sin. Really, that's, that's what it means. Then he goes on in verse 8, and he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so coming near to God involves approaching God in worship and commitment. You know, that's what Chip and the team were trying to do this morning. I mean, their role here every Sunday is to lead us into the presence of God so that you can, so that all of us can take that step forward into a closer relationship with him. And this idea of, of cleansing your hands is really using the, uh, the language that you find in the Old Testament about religious ceremony. So you remember there were, there were rites of purification that occurred in, in numerous places in the Old Testament. And it's taking that language and sort of applying it in a, in a more of a moral sense here. Um, and so I think what, what James is really saying in this verse is, if you want to look at it this way, this idea of cleansing your hands is uh, effectively saying, clean up your act on the outside, right? Clean up what you're, the things that you're doing or not doing, right? And then purifying your hearts is talking more about what's going on on the inside, right? Your thought life and, and, and various things like that. And so the language here is essentially soaked with the words from one of the Psalms that talks about believers having um, clean hands and a pure heart. Right? That's from Psalm 24. Then verse 9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This verse is calling for open repentance, calling for us to actually come forward because mourning and weeping are what? They're the outward visible signs of someone who is repenting and who has sort of realized the wretchedness of their own life. To change laughter and joy to mourning and gloom demands that we recognize just how how pointless some of our actions are, the folly in that, of trying especially to exalt ourselves above, above God. And then finally, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So he, to close this out, he gives us both a command, humble yourselves before the Lord, and a promise, and he will exalt you. And so there's a, th- this humbling has got to be a voluntary thing. It's a voluntary turning to God. It's, if you want to picture this, it would be of um, someone who's just falling on their face before a powerful king and pleading for mercy. Okay? And the reason for that is if, if we look, if we try to look at ourselves from our own perspective, probably one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to be far more flattering to ourselves than we ought to be, sort of like maybe Joe Namath, or hopelessly pessimistic, right? We tend to kind of fall into one of those two extremes, right? We either can't do anything right, or we're, you know, the greatest thing ever. And so if, you're gonna, if you respond with the insight that's provided by the Holy Spirit, we're able in that time to see our own unworthiness, um, but we also have a sense of God's ability to forgive us and to receive us. So sort of looking at the main idea of all of this, I think we could say this, that humility is important to God. And it's so it ought to become <laughs> important to you. If God thinks this much, uh, how important humility is, then it's something that we clearly uh, need to get our arms around. So taking that sort of to its logical next step is how do we do that? Well, I think you can obtain humility uh, in four ways, and and James outlines them here in verses 7 and 8. So very clearly, the first one has got to be submission. Right? Submit yourselves to God. And submission really means that all we are and all we have, we just make available to God without any reservations. That's the key part, without any reservations. Right? We talk a lot, or we've, I've heard it mentioned, this idea that you, know, you think of, you invite God into your life, and, and so your life is kind of like a house that has a lot of different rooms. And, you know, initially, we invite God to come in, but we kind of want to keep him in the entryway. We don't really want him to see the rest of the house. We're fine. Yeah, yeah, come on in, Lord. Make yourself at home. Just stay there. <laughs> don't go anywhere else, right? And eventually, maybe then, we'll say, okay, well, um, you can come and sit in the living room. <laughs> right? So we open it up a little bit more. And then we, the Lord says he's thirsty, so we're like, well, okay, well, why don't you come in the kitchen and get a glass of water? Right? And so this sort of goes on. However, 
there's a point with all of us where the Lord is going around and he's trying doors in our house. And he comes to this closet door that's locked and we're like, oh no, Mm-mm, you are not going in there. Right? So those are the areas that he's looking for us to submit to. Right? It's a gradual process. It doesn't necessarily happen all at once or all at the same time. But eventually, you need to unlock that door and let him look inside. And the thing about this verse, of, you know, there's really, there's two halves to this verse, right? Verse 7a and 7b. First part talks about submission to God. The second talks about resisting the devil. And the problem is, a lot of Christians tend to focus more on the last part of that than the first part, right? They think, well, I just need to resist the devil and, and, and that'll be okay, but they forget about the submission to God part, right? But that's really the key to getting spiritual victory, is this submission. And so what does that involve? Well, I think, first of all, um, it involves letting go of any sin that you may be hiding in your heart somewhere. That's that closet door that's locked that you don't want to let Jesus into. Then I think... <coughs> You've got to pray for God's help and his strength and his guidance. Because without that, it's like I said, you're going to just approach this thing based on sort of how you view yourself. And you're not going to be able to see how God sees you, right? And to be able to respond to what he tells you. I think the third part of submission is giving up on any habits or activities that might give sin or temptation an entrance into your life that could ultimately be hindering the spiritual progress that you're trying to make, right? Um, any kind of bad habit, you, you just, we want to avoid those, you know? Some people, uh, sort of like, let's just say you go to the Grand Canyon. And uh, for purposes of this illustration, we'll say that the Grand Canyon is full of sin. <laughs> and that's where sin resides. It's in, in there. That huge hole. Okay. So we go and, you know, but we, we want to see it. We think we want to see it. So we'll walk up. You know, it's the difference between just standing there and knowing that it's there and not really having any kind of real desire to see it to walking all the way up to the very edge so that our toes are right on the edge and we're just kind of looking like that. And at that point, we're done for, right? Because we've gone that far. It's just not that hard to take one more little step. And so um, we've got to make sure that we stay an appropriate distance back from any of those things that could end up tempting us. Uh, a fourth way to sur surrendering your own preconceived ideas and strategies on how to overcome sin or Satan in relying on God's strategies. Right? See, if you continue to study and pray, he's ultimately going to show you how to deal with these things. But too often we think, well, I know how to deal with that. And we go ahead and try our way, and it doesn't work. And then we come back to square one, and eventually we may hopefully find that, well, let me, you know, I wonder what, 
this is the whole thing about praying later. I wonder what God would want me to do here. Everything I've tried doesn't really seem to work. Number five, doing exactly what God shows you and following the Holy Spirit's guidance. It becomes an obedience issue at some point, right? God's going to show you what to do. Now are you going to do it? Number six, actively pursuing God's purposes and taking positive action um, so as to occupy your attention with spiritual matters, keeping a humble attitude towards God and others, turning your attention fully to God, etc. So those are things that, that, that we can do to uh, sort of begin to form this habit of submission. Second is resistance. And like I said, in earlier in James's letter, he sort of stresses that, you know, a person's own um, that a person's own evil tendencies are his the result of his own actions or attitudes towards sin. But in here he's at least recognizing that there is the role of an evil being in all of this. And so we have to understand that the devil can try all kinds of different things to uh, seduce us. If we look at uh, what he tried on Jesus that we see in uh, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, he first of all challenged his um, self-sufficiency, right? He challenged Jesus to meet his own needs. Um, then he tried self-importance. He wanted Jesus just to test God to see what would happen. And finally, it was the seduction of power, right? I'll give you this world if you just will bow down to me. And so those are the things that he tried, you know, with Jesus. In just the first part of James, he, what does he try? Well, first of all, he wants, um, he tempts us to respond with bitterness if there's any kind of hardship in life. Uh, there's the seduction to doubt constantly, right? To always be doubting what you believe. Uh, the seduction to blame God for temptation, when in fact it's not God at all. Uh, the seduction that good things come from somewhere other than God. And finally, the seduction that we can have faith without changing the way we live. And so what we have to realize in all this is that the enemy's power over us is only as strong as the illusion that he is more powerful than God. Next is proximity. In Hebrews 10.22, there's image that's used that's similar to what James says in 4.8 to picture the dynamics of what our relationship with God is supposed to look like. It says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And so Hebrews describes this old system, you know, where God was separated from the people, isolated in the Holy of Holies with this big curtain. And no one could go, you know, you only the one high priest could go in and uh, interact with God. And yet it was Jesus that provides us a way by tearing the curtain in two. 
I don't know if you've heard this described, but we're not talking about a, you know, a shear that you can go buy at Walmart. Right? This thing was thick. And it took some effort to really tear this thing. And yet Jesus tore it in two to provide us with that access. He provides us the way to do it. And so when we draw near to, gar to, to God, we don't have to go very far. But you do have to go. There's a step that you have to take. But the added benefit in this is that God will immediately meet you as soon as you take that step. Right? And so it could be that in order to act out you know, that decision that you're making to, to come nearer to God, you might have to participate in some sort of a physical um, movement, right? Maybe you've been gone from church for a while. It may mean that you need to go back regularly. It could be that um, even though you've been in church, you might need to go with a new sense of encountering God during worship. Um, you may even need to make a public declaration of your decision to draw near to God, right? These aren't substitutes for the inward action of seeking God, but they can help us sort of confirm our intention, all right? And then finally is disinfection, right? This command to cleanse and purify means that we have to change both our internal and our external behavior. And I think the connection, to wa the connection of washing to submission can really be seen in the account of, of uh, the Last Supper when Jesus goes and he washes the disciples' feet. They had to submit to him serving them. And if you've read the story, you will remember that Peter found that very difficult to do, did not want to submit at all. But the, the, the picture then involves this submission of our exterior lives to God's cleansing. And so we distance ourselves from the sin. Um, and when we do that, then that option uh, for us to remain double-minded goes away. We then, we have to put aside that idea that we can love both God and the world. So purity of heart then is a matter of, of, of being single-minded. Well, there was an article in the New York Times a while back that observed how um, humility is not what it used to be. Um, as a matter of fact, it may be the exact opposite of what it used to mean. It said, lately it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory, for politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded, prize won, Job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received, Facebook like, and thumb upped. <coughs> Diving at random into the internet and social media finds this new humility everywhere. A soap opera actress on tour is humbled by the outpouring of love from her fans. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Yoga practitioners are humbled by achieving difficult poses. Athletes are humbled by good days on the field. Volunteers at Christmas time are humbled by their own generosity and holiday spirit. But you know what? None of these people sound very humble, do they? 
On the contrary, they all sound exceedingly proud of themselves. Going around hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, sprightliness, generosity, moral superiority, and luck. When did humility get so cocky and vainglorious? Well, the point is, it didn't. <laughs> this is nothing more than pride masquerading as humility. And it's not remotely close to the humility that James is advocating in this text. And so, uh, my invitation to you this week to put this faith in action for yourself it's decide which one of those four ways, submission, resistance, proximity, and disinfection, is the hardest for you. And then try to make some improvement in that area. Okay? You know, is it harder for you to submit? Um, is your proximity to God, your nearness to God, a problem? Do you feel like you've kind of drifted uh, and you're a little bit further away? Well, then... Put some effort into drawing near. As we said, it just takes a tiny bit of effort, and God will meet you. But you have to take the first step. Uh, it could be that uh, disinfection is required, either in your outward life or your inward life, right? So think about that, and then figure out what you think is the, you know, is the one that, that God would have you to work on, and then um, move forward in trying to... Um, be more humble. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, you guys want to come back up? I'm going to do things a little bit differently today. If I could have uh, John come up and uh, Shelly and Donna. You, John, why don't you go over on that side? You are. Go stand in the corner. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, we've been saying that we really want this, the, the third part of our service, to be an opportunity for you to encounter God in some way. And so, um, in praying about that this week and trying to figure out what to do, I felt like what God said was uh, to, to have these three, effectively three areas. If there is, if you are someone who is in need of physical healing in some way, you know, you have an ache, pain, whatever, you're supposed to go and see John. This is John over there standing in the corner. Um, and John's going to pray for you. If instead you, your issues are more, um, <laughs> I wanted to say mental, that's really not what I mean. <laughs> but that could be true for some of you. Um, if you have questions in your life, if you're dealing with a particularly hard situation, uh, whatever you know, that case may be, if you just feel like you need a word from God right now, then can either go see Shelly, this is Shelly, raise your hand Shelly, or Donna, over there, all right? Uh, on the other hand, if in fact what uh, you are in need of is if you just need um, 
if you feel like that um, proximity is a problem that you need to deal with in terms of either either humility or just the idea of uh, I want to be closer to God than I am now, then I just invite you to come up and um, and I'll be happy to pray with you. Or if you've never made the decision to follow Jesus and that is something that you've been thinking about and that you decide that today is the day that you want to do that then I would really encourage you to come and and, uh, I would love to pray with you uh, about that decision and and help lead you through that so uh, those are your choices we're just going to listen to uh, the worship team play and uh, You are free to sit there and just soak in that or take advantage of the folks that are here willing to uh, pray and to share God's spirit. So, Father, I thank you for this time. I just ask you to come, Holy Spirit. Let your presence be in this place now. Thanks and praise. Ask this in Jesus' name.